Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. I have invited back just one of my favorites of all time, Hazel Henderson, who is an internationally renowned evolutionary economist. Uh, Green economist is another way that we have described her. She is the founder and president of Ethical Markets Media. Uh, they make TV shows um, similar to what we do at A Better World, uh, Better World TV, uh, and yet she is uh, circulating, circulating them around uh, business schools around the world, actually. So she's helping to give the upcoming MBAs a new crack at an ethical and green outlook in the work they do as they become entrepreneurs, and we like to think of as ethical entrepreneurs. Hazel's uh, credentials are far-reaching. She has been a counsel to heads of state in different parts of the world, especially Europe and the United States, and has done so much to advance the understanding of what she has termed the solarizing of the coming age, and uh, we all appreciate that. She has been one of the real pioneers in the thoughts around and building up of a green-based economy. And so it's today, uh, the subject of today's show is the Green New Deal. So Hazel has been reviewing it, and we are going to discuss it in some detail now so we can understand how we can, as a country, as a nation, pivot in this direction. Certainly, we've begun so far and are doing a lot, mainly in the sector of business, but not so much government, as we all are painfully aware. But this new Green Deal gives us an opportunity for a fresh start now that we have some fresh, young, progressive blood in Congress. So, Hazel, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure to have you, my dear. Thank you, Mitchell. Always a pleasure. So glad. Well, I gave an introduction of you after uh, Beethoven, and uh, <laughs> I was speaking Thank you. About it was very fulsome. <laughs> uh, I was speaking about it. it could be much fuller, but it would take the whole show. So. Um, but I wanted us to bear down, Hazel, <clears throat> on the subject of the Green New Deal, because this is really the most promising legislation that has been proposed. I know it's getting bandied about right now and naysayed already, but that's you know par for the course. I don't take any of that seriously. Uh, the United States, um, you know, the green people of the United States, States, entrepreneurs and others haven't even begun to get behind it just yet. So if you would, let us know, tell our audience about what you think of it, what are its main tenets, and what should we know about it? Well, thank you, because, you know, uh, we have been putting out every year since 2009 our Green Transition Scoreboard, where we have been tracking the private investments going into green sectors around the world. And uh, our most recent report for 2018, there is now a cumulative $9.3 
of private uh, capital uh, now in the pipeline um, investing in uh, green wind solar energy efficiency electric cars um, vehicle chargers led lighting you know you name it mm-hmm. all the technologies yep. that we want for non-fossil a green new deal fuel based non-fossil fuel right, based right. energy efficiency and And so the point is that we know very well from our 10 years of research in all of this that uh, what is being proposed here for a Green New Deal is completely doable, and we could have done this decades ago. As a matter yes. of fact, Mitchell, if it hadn't been yes. for all of the uh, obstruction of the fossil fuel industry and the fact that 90% of the government subsidies were to fossil fuels and nuclear power, yeah. and uh, if it hadn't been for that uh, unlevel playing field, we would have been 100% a green, renewable, clean economy decades ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what is so mind-boggling. And I found yes. out all about that as a science policy wonk when I was in Washington at the U.S. Office of Technology Assessment and the National Science what Foundation. What years were those, Hazel? Uh, that, was the, that was from 1974 to 1980. And I remember one of the guys who I served with on that one of those advisory groups who went on to become the uh, uh, administrator of NASA, Jim Fletcher, a uh, scientist who had run um, the Midwest Research Institute, he told us one day uh, when uh, we were all gathered together um, for one of our advisory board meetings in the Congress, and he said, you know, if we had been subsidizing uh, solar, wind, um, energy efficiency, um, electric vehicles, geothermal, all of these technologies, if we had been subsidizing them to the extent we subsidized fossil fuels and nuclear, he said, mm-hmm. and this was the year 1975, and he said, we would have been a completely renewable energy run economy right now. And that's hmm. like So God, that means it would have taken 25 or 35 years? Yes, yes. And mm-hmm. so that's how powerful the incumbent uh, fossil fuel industries have been. And of course, particularly yes. nuclear power, um, which was an absolute you know, burden on the taxpayers and you know, never would have been developed Indeed. if it hadn't been for the enormous subsidies. So now at last we have a new Congress coming in and uh, we now, what we need now um, is kind of uh, the leadership, which I think we're going to get from this new Democrat group, and that is mm-hmm. kind of a moonshot approach to this. Okay, let's yes. pull all the constituencies together, all of the business groups we've been following, all the technology groups, um, the, the climate um, groups, and uh, so many. Uh, NGOs, um, you know, anti-pollution groups, and all the rest of it. All of us can agree that this is where the new jobs are coming from. And if we don't make this uh, energy 
transition, which is just a perfectly natural thing. You know, we've been transitioning energy systems, we humans, ever since we went from coal, uh, when when we went from whale oil to petroleum and from wood to coal. You know, this is just a natural Mm -hmm. progression. progression. It's just a natural new, another transition in the course of many, you're saying. And I think and that's so a here's very exciting thoughtful thing. way of looking that, at it. You know, it yeah. gives a historical context to it. Yes, and and so the thing is now that the, this is exactly the moment when the idea of a Green New Deal can pull together all of these forces that have, you know, all of these groups that have been independently working on this stuff. And um, all of those people like Green Jobs for All that really understand that this is where the new jobs are coming from. And I was delighted to see on Huffington Post uh, just a little while ago a survey which found that 81% of the public, of the registered voters, support the idea of this Green New Deal. Really? And that includes 64% of Republicans. And 57% of self-described conservative Republicans and more than 300 state and local officials have voiced their support. And so, you see, we've all been waiting to get behind something like this um, with the new Congress. And and now we've got this new Congress. This is the time. So I studied... Uh, the proposal that came out of the office of the new uh, Congresswoman Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez and um, has all of these supporters now. And basically, I I looked through it very, very carefully and 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 she has everything in here, <laughs> you know, all the things that we would have liked uh-huh. to see in here that we jump up and down about. <laughs> yes, yes, and including that this is the the most encouraging thing to me. She understands what's wrong with the old economic dogma that I've mm-hmm. been fighting all my life. You know that every time anyone comes up with a really good proposal to move forward some kind of real good social innovation, uh, there will be some defunct economist or politician that <laughs> listens to them yes. who will say, where's the money coming from? It's <laughs> you know? like Anderson Cooper point. did last night on 60 uh, Minutes. Actually. Yes, I saw that. Playing was devil's so advocate, you know. So funny. See, and that's because um, economists um, have always misunderstood or not really properly explained in their textbooks Mm -hmm. how money is created. And unless you understand the politics of money creation and credit allocation, which, of course, we all know in finance, um, then you can't really understand how all of this happens. And, of course, uh, what we know now is that, of course, there's plenty of money. There's no shortage of money. We create money. We see it being printed on TV. You know, all (laughs) the central bankers in the world create money. They print it out of thin air. (laughs) And the only problem is... Walk us 
Walk us through the process for those not in finance. You said everyone in finance knows how it's created, so oh, share with us what's really <laughs> behind it. This, well, it's a true what, story what, of Oh, money. well, you know, it, it's, re- it's really funny, Mitchell, because, you know, uh, the, now, beca- after the financial um, collapse of t- 2008, um, uh, mm-hmm. there, it really spilled the beans. And even the Bank of England now has kind of gone public and said, well, look, yeah, we really do have to admit now that um, what <laughs> we did, and of course, this has really been followed by most um, of, of, the, of the industrial OECD, CD countries in the world. What we did was we ceded to the private banks the right to um, print to coin the, the the money. I mean, in our constitution in the U.S., it says that the Congress controls the coining of the money supply. Yes. Controlled by the way, not by the Federal Reserve Bank, but by the Treasury. Yes, exactly. Correct. And so what happened, of course, in this country in 1913 was that the mm-hmm. private banks got together and said, no, we want to do that. We don't want, right. we don't want the Treasury to want do to it. You know, it. We want privately. to do it. You know, and so the same thing happened in Britain. You know, I grew up in Britain. And so mm-hmm. um, the Bank of England did exactly the same thing. They turned over to the private banks the right to to uh, print money out of thin air. And the way they do it um, is when they make a loan. Uh, Every time a private bank makes a loan to somebody for a mortgage, um, they don't take somebody else's deposit and give it to this person for the new loan. Uh, They simply put an entry into the the borrower's account um, of the amount. Um, and that's the new money, and that's well, the then way. They, then they write a check on. They write that's a check right, on of that course basis. Right, except like it's electronic now. But it, it just yes. means that all they do is um, write electronically into the borrower's account the money, whatever whatever amount it was. And um, actually today, over 90% of the money supply in this country and in Britain and in most OECD countries is created that way as debt by private banks. And so most people, you know, cannot get their mind around this because, you know, how on earth did we let this happen? And yeah. as a matter of fact, we had um, we have on ethicalmarkets.tv, um, we have a, a one-hour special uh, called The Money Fix, which uh, explains all of this, mm-hmm. if anyone wants to go into greater detail. So what we're talking about here, which is so exciting, is that in this uh, Green New Deal plan, they understand exactly the the politics of money creation and credit allocation. And and like um, uh, uh, Representative uh, Cortez said to Anderson Cooper last night on 60 Minutes, she said, well, you never ask that question, where's the money coming from, when uh, when we want to do the wall or when we want to um, fund the military or when we want to do a tax cut, you know. um, Only when it comes to social programs. It's only when it comes to the Green Deal. (laughs) (laughs) Only things that are actually for people. Yes. 
Yes. And so um, I am delighted that uh, she understands this because, uh, you know, this is what we need. We cannot permit these economists to keep pulling the wool over our eyes. And you see, the whole thing is um, when central bankers create money, which they also do, they call it quantitative easing, as you know. And Mm -hmm. when they do that, there's nothing wrong with that either, as long as when they print the money, um, they don't give it to their friends to bail out the mistakes, you see, and and that's generally what happened after 2008. What happened by 2008, as an example. Now, there's a provision. You know, they printed all of this money, and they gave it uh, to the big banks, and um, exactly. see, there's there's no reason why you can't do quantitative easing or, or what I like to call qualitative easing, qualitative and say easing no, way. no, we'll make, we'll uh, we'll use this money to uh, invest in the future to create the future infrastructure that we need, i.e., the Green New Deal. And and basically, yeah. this goes back to Franklin Roosevelt. He knew um, that, that 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 was the way things actually happened in the real world. So uh, that's the most Im- important thing about this, that um, they and um, the people who helped her write this, they understand all of that. They also uh, pick up on our friend Ellen Brown's um, magnificent work. Yes, uh, and uh, they say, uh, why can't... Tell us about that, how that, the idea of public banking, as Ellen Brown has so brilliantly put forward very clearly for people, people's understanding and education about the money and banking system, how does that interface? What will be the difference between banking as usual and funding as usual and what would be stipulated in the new Green Deal relative to public banking? Well, you see, the way I think it would go is that many, many states um, would be able, just like the state of North Dakota, and back a hundred years ago, when uh, the the uh, uh, the bank, uh, the the farmers were losing their farms, and Wall Street was foreclosing on their loans, just a hundred years ago, um, they decided in North Dakota, heck. We know what we're going to do. We are going to have our own bank here in North Dakota, and we are going to put our taxes, our local taxes, into this local bank that we will own. We won't want to be part Mm. of the Federal Reserve System. And Mm -hmm. this way, we will give loans um, out. We will fund our own community banks all over the state, and we will make loans at very low or no interest. And so what happened was that the Bank of North Dakota, which I discovered when I was writing politics of the, my books back in the, in the early 1980s, I discovered this. Mm. And basically, it's the most successful bank um, but par- probably in the country. And it survived the 2008 crash. Um, in fine shape, and it kept the state of North Dakota, their unemployment rate was 2%. 
when the rest of the country, the unemployment rate shot up to 10%. So, so the whole thing is that every state in the union can, if it goes, uh, and now there's about 14 states, as far as I remember last time I talked to Ellen Brown, uh, and I'm an advisor to the Public Banking Institute, that uh, mm-hmm. there's now bills and um, uh, study groups in about 14 states around this country, maybe more by now, uh, that are looking into, hey, why don't we keep our money here at home? Why do we send so it to Wall Street? And so, so in other words, just imagine, the, fundamental, the fundamental idea is that it's local. The money is... Uh, Collected locally, it's, it's kept local, local taxpayers, for yeah. local for local activity, exactly. and it's not wired into the larger money system, which involves exactly. the FDIC and, of course, yes, the Federal exactly. Bank. And and so uh, basically, um, as Ellen points out, and I highly recommend her articles. We publish all her articles on ethicalmarkets.com, mm-hmm. and she has a very good one that we just posted on exactly how uh, public banking can help with the Green New Deal. And so that every state in the union that wants to get on board and start shifting very quickly uh, to get money into solar and wind and renewables and geothermal and all of these other technologies, um, they can do, just do it uh, with their, by setting up their own public banks. And so that, that there'll be a lot, a lot of local diversity because a lot of states it'll be wind power, other states it'll be solar, some states yes. it'll be geothermal. You know, who knows? Sure. Sure. So well, you know that so leads that... to that leads to something I would like to bring up and get your thoughts on Hazel, <clears throat> which is how to develop a really coordinated, cooperative, scientifically based approach to reversing this phenomenon called global warming, which is so seriously exacerbating this other thing we call climate change. And someone you have known well over the course of many years, and I have been an admirer of and interviewed him this uh, past few months, this past fall, is Paul Hawken. And in his latest work, uh, His Drawdown, drawdown, right, the most comprehensive plan to reverse global warming, correct, uh, ever proposed, he, as you know, he pooled together a couple of hundred scientists from around the world, all with their own specialties, and they came up with a, basically an 80 to 100 point plan in order, in rank order of what are the most uh, onerous of all greenhouse gases, what are the most onerous problems and what are their solutions and it's in a very step-by-step order and i would like to and i'm going to contact alexandra ocasio cortez about this about using that as the manual if you will as the guidance for how to go about the execution so it's not haphazard excellent but it's actually very coherent yes yeah, and you know so you I like did. That? A, yeah. Yes, absolutely. I've known Paul Hawken for years, and actually, um, uh, I did a review uh, of that book when it came out. It's terrific, mm-hmm. and there was only one. I, I saw thing. it at your house. I remember. Yes. Yeah, there's only one thing I could have added, and that yes. was there's 
the the news is even better when you add the fact that we can now shift a lot of our uh, food supply to salt-loving yes. plants, I know where you're going. which yeah, right. thrive on yes. unused desert land. And I sure. love being irrigated by salt water, do not require yeah. fertilizers or pesticides, um, and this would incredibly add to our food supply, conserve right. fresh water, and uh, can be done so quickly. Um, this is this is something which, within a ten-year f- time frame, uh, we yeah. could be adding all of these very nutritious. Uh, salt-loving foods. And the one that yes. people know best is quinoa, the grain yes. that you get mm-hmm. at, the, at the health food store, although it's sure. now in all the supermarkets. Considered an ancient grain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. that's the only thing um, that isn't in drawdown and that I drew attention to in my review. Yeah. Hey, Paul, it's even better than we thought. Yes, it's even better. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, true. I have two more that I would add myself, one is the grow, and it's in the food domain, one of them, and one of them is not, I'll tell you. In the food domain, there are what are called microgreens, and the use of both hydroponic and aeroponic, where again, in both, you don't need soil, and people, it's really in the domain of urban farming, where in your windowsill, a family can be growing microgreens to serve the whole family. You're absolutely right. And one of the people on our advisory board um, has a company called Terraformers. And uh, and basically, she is networking together all of the people who are growing food on their windowsills and on their um, balconies. And she is a former because I'm involved in a project. Yeah, she she is a former astronaut. She's a former NASA scientist. Oh, wonderful. wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so I'll yes. have to well, that's one make thing. sure I put you there's two another in touch one. with each other. Yes, absolutely. The yes. other item that I told his co-author, Catherine Wilkinson, a very lovely woman and colleague of his, who I also interviewed uh, back in the fall when Pachamama Alliance actually was deeply involved in sponsoring a drawdown event that Bill McKibben, I told you about it at the time, Bill McKibben was the moderator of, Lynn Twist Mm -hmm. was on the panel. It was really exceptional. Anyway, I had told Catherine in a dialogue that we had had that number one, really, I think, is changing the human mind. (laughs) You can't leave out the human component. (laughs) If you change the human mind, everything takes off like a rocket ship. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Right? Everything falls into line. But we're always arguing against that, as we see in Congress, as as you said. Well, that's because the whole economic. Yes. I mean, the the whole economic model is wrong, you know, and it's still kind of geared to this whole idea of economic growth, which we know now is driving us over the cliff. Talk to us a little bit about that because, you know, we're aligned, but I'd love our audience to understand. Mm -hmm. I've talked to them about this before, but please share with us this myth of economic growth, Hazel. 
Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I was with the Calvert Group from 1982 to 2004, and uh, Uh we were putting together portfolios that were clean and green, you know, no weapons and all of that kind of thing. And Calvert uh, uh, partnered with me uh, to put out what we called the Calvert Henderson Quality of Life Indicators. And Mm -hmm. that was our, um, uh, our antidote to GDP. Because GDP only counts cash, cash um, denominated whatever, you know, completely yeah. ignores yeah. all of the social and environmental costs. They it's just call them externalities, you know. Yeah. I've always called that a Freudian slip. You know, to say, oh, it's an externality. We don't want to count the pollution we've created. We'll just not not That's acknowledge right. that on our balance sheet. You know, That's and right. so the, the the GDP was never intended. as though there were no cost to that, right? As though yeah. there were no cost. So the GDP was never intended to be an, a measure of national progress. Even the guy who invented it, Simon Kuznets, and I was an advisor to the European Commission on a conference that we had in two thousand. 2009 called um, uh, was it no it was 2007 my gosh Um, Mm -hmm. and it was called Beyond GDP and we brought all of these people together all of the statisticians who uh, cover the statistics on poverty gaps on health on education on environment and basically uh, said look we have to add into our national progress indicators, all of these additional uh, statistics rather than just Mm -hmm. the money-based transactions, which is only half of what goes on. I mean, you know, what I discovered when I first started writing and reading about this was what I call the love economy, which is Mm -hmm. the 50% of all productive work in every society in the world, which is unpaid. And that is the raising of children and the the maintaining of households, serving on the school board, all Mm -hmm. of that. And my gosh, um, you know, mostly it's women's work. And so um, Calvert and I um, produced this um, Calvert Henderson Quality of Life Index in 2000, mm-hmm. and they're still available on Amazon. And of course, now it's been picked up um, by the OECD, and uh, and of course, the the one that's getting all the publicity is the one that came out of Bhutan, which I yeah, helped to, to showcase, exactly. and that is the gross national that's happiness. Right. So, exactly. basically, um, what we now have is the best set of new indicators, and they are the UN. Uh, sustainable development goals. So they, mm-hmm. that's a very holistic model of 17 goals that ev- that 195 countries have that's all agreed are the yes. goals uh, of all citizens. You know, to have clean air and clean water, and maintain fish stocks, and have yes. uh, good jobs, and shift to the green economy, and all of these mm-hmm. things. And so now uh, we now have the indicator we need. We've gone from GDP to the SDGs. And we have to coach the economists. And we literally, Mitchell, we have to retrain the economists and retrain. 
train yeah. the asset managers because they're still on the old program. Well, this is one of the reasons, Hazel, not that only do I just uh, love you to pieces for the work that you've been doing for so long, <laughs> but I so honor and respect that you have seen what you have seen, and you, of all places, are reaching out to the business schools to get the young students, the economists, the people the, who are students of MBAs, etc., yes. to train them early to understand that, that there is the qualitative aspect, and oh, there are yes. no externalities. We pay for everything. We pay as they for say, everything. There's no free yeah. lunch, right? Right. And uh, this is so so important in that retraining process. Really, well, there's I, a I wonderful so new book. Been doing Actually, this. there's two new books that I would love to recommend to all of your listeners, mm-hmm. Mitchell. And sure. uh, one, both of one of them is by uh, a friend of mine, uh, Nick Silver, who is a teacher at the London School of Economics, and one of us, and was one of the co-founders of the Green Bonds Group in London. You know that are uh, helping mm-hmm. people float all of these green bonds all over the world. My God, they're really mm-hmm. taking off, you know. And mm. uh, his book is called um, "It's Called uh, Finance, Society, and Sustainability," and he goes after the economics profession. And we do say profession because it's not a science. I want to repeat Correct. that: economics <laughs> is not a science. As a matter of fact, economics is politics in disguise. <laughs> so let's remember that. Put, I guess. And, he, right. and in this book, he just he just spills the beans and points out that all of this financialization has uh, upended the entire purpose of finance, which was to serve the needs of the of the local main street economies. And it's turned out um, that it's really predatory now on the main street economy. So his book, Mm -hmm. I highly recommend that. Um, You know, I have my book reviews on our site. Um, We have a page called Books and Reviews. And and then the other, even newer one, is by a, a British, another British economist, um, Mariana Mazzucato, who's very famous, actually. And she's an mm-hmm. advisor to the EU and teaches uh, in uh, um, at a, a London university. And her mm-hmm. book is called The Value of Everything. And the uh-huh. entire book is making the same kind of critique of the economics profession uh, that Nick does in his book. Um, Mm -hmm. Except, you know, in some ways, she's even harsher on the economists. And what Mm. she points out is that the economists never really were clear about what activities were value-creating and what activities were value-extracting. And she says for many, many years in the history of economics, um, the financial function was always considered value-extracting. It was basically redistribution of the values that were created by the people on Main Street, you know, manufacturing shoes and uh, growing cabbages. Yes. And 
so she brings it down to the most fundamental errors um, in all of the economic models um, that they they have it completely backwards. So that's a wonderful book, very readable. And I just did a review of that on Seeking Alpha, which is a platform in London which has about 5 million market people who go to that site, use that site. Let's take a moment here. I just have to let everyone know that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are spending today's entire show with Hazel Henderson, green evolutionary economist, the founder and the president of Ethical Markets Media. Uh, You can receive our free newsletter, if you don't already, at our website, www.abetterworld.tv. You can also learn about who our guests will be for the coming week, both on the radio show and every Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. In Manhattan, we have A Better World TV. So please join us and become part of A Better World community and family. So with that said, I want to continue on with you, Hazel. I want to ask a question related to some of what you're saying here, especially about externalities, because I'm always learning so much from you. Uh, Some time ago, you told me about something that could change the economics of the fossil fuel industry. And this is so important. It has to do with the way finance regards externalities and the value of keeping the oil in the ground versus not. Oh, uh, yeah. Can you explain yes, to our Michael. audience what that means well, and the significant yeah. shift it means for their, uh, for their spreadsheets? Yes. Well, you know, I began to feel um, really rather sorry for all of these asset managers who manage our pension funds and our 401ks because they're now screaming and they're saying, oh, this green transition is going too fast. It's too fast. You know, we've got all of these stranded fossil fuel reserves on our books and and in our accounts, yeah. and we're going to have to write them down. Oh my God, we've got to slow up this green transition. And so, so what that really means is that they are basically um, revenues that are considered in potential, but that are not realized. Is that correct? Exactly. Yes. And so they carried on the books as reserves, and yes. uh, so this is what they're terrified about. And so I was saying, oh, oh, oh well, my gosh, let's to throw these poor guys a bone, you know? And so mm-hmm. I, I was saying, well, look, um, why don't you open up the algorithms? Because, you know, all of this is computerized trading. That's why the market is going up and down every day. Yes. Um, most trading now, as you know, Mitchell, is done by computer. No no yes. human hands involved. <laughs> AI. Know? It's all AI. algorithms, you know? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I was saying to these asset managers, well, look, um, just um, unpack your algorithm take a look at it and see uh, what the assumptions are about those fossil review or reserves are they categorized in your algorithm um, as fuel to be burned presumably or 
um, something else. And and I was saying, all you have to do with a stroke of the pen um, is to recategorize them uh, from fuel um, into feedstock uh, to be kept in the ground much more valuable. You shouldn't be burning something as valuable as uh, a petroleum asset. Um, took nature all those billions of years to make them, you know. And so just keep them in the ground, um, recategorize them as feedstock, and then um, say, well, you know, we don't have to write them down now on everybody's 401k. We can just say um, we're keeping them in the ground for future use as as, uh, plastics and all of the uses um, of yes. a petroleum, and then they they wouldn't have to worry. And so I did get uh, quite a, a lot of feedback from asset managers. You know, I put them into mm-hmm. the network that I use, so those kind of people. Mm-hmm. And and yet, of course, a lot of them were saying, "Okay, well, look, we're going to make this our private secret sauce now, and we're not going to mm-hmm. tell the other guys." <laughs> Oh dear! <laughs> so oh, such is the human uh, mind, right? Yeah. But, so and that's this is what's so, that's, so interesting. You know the yeah. Exxon, the the ruling um, the, that uh, the um, Massachusetts uh, um, uh, suit against Exxon uh, that the, you know they want to um, bring them up on the fact that they knew that um, these fossil fuels were going to create climate problems. And the, yeah. the Supreme Court has just Back decided in the 1950s, not to hear... The, actually. Yeah. So the, the Supreme Court has decided not to hear the case. So now it can go forward. And what we will see, I guess, in the next year is all of those Exxon executives will be standing before congressional committees just like the tobacco executives were. Yeah. Having to um, swear to tell the truth that they knew all along that um, burning fossil fuels were going to wreck the climate. Mm, so it's um, very interesting, isn't it? See, I think that um, we are at an inflection point. And all of this stuff now is getting cleaned out, you know, and um, it's painful. But, you know, my motto, and and that is that breakdowns drive breakthroughs. And if we didn't have all these things breaking down, painful as it is, um, we wouldn't uh, have the space to open up for things as exciting as the Green New Deal. Well, one of our favorite people said that back in the 70s, known as Werner Erhardt. <laughs> oh, really? A large part of, oh, yes, oh, yes. Oh, that was definitely that? Uh, a big motive force inside his work at EST and later the forum and his consulting work, by all means, by all means. Yeah. But I'd like to just come back to this ingenious stroke of the pen here, Hazel, because uh, just so I understand wholly, by converting the idea of the assets in the ground from oil to be burned to feedstock to be used changes the economics of the spreadsheet so that the 401ks and pensions are showing greater profitability. 
Is that ultimately where this Yes, at least, they're, at least they're not going to be losing money. See, that was the thing. The bottom oh, okay. was going to drop out of the market for these fossil reserves if we don't do something like that. And you see, the whole point is that why on earth would, be, would we be burning something as uh, as valuable actually as fossil reserves i mean let's yeah. keep them in the ground and and uh, you know um, that that's all we have to do to to preserve the climate is just keep them in the ground and at some yeah. point we may lift some of those reserves and use them for new chemicals or for plastics or whatever who knows well what. the use of it as pl- this is the other point i wanted to raise um the use of plastics, they should be kept in the ground for that purpose as well, because plastics are yeah, you're the, absolutely the utter right. complete yeah. menace to our yes, ocean and yeah. our uh, marine yes. life and coral reefs and all of that. Right, but, right. The, but nonetheless, it does raise a question about what constructive bio and eco-friendly use do fossil fuels have, and I bet that it wouldn't take long to conceive of some of them, and many, I'm sure, already have. So there is a way of utilizing their assets without the companies going belly up. And the most important thing, really, as I say, is is basically to say that um, for now, the important thing is don't burn this, don't burn those fossil fuels. Correct. That's the main, main thing we're talking about. We may never Absolutely. have to use them for anything. We may go, you know, 100% when we go on 100% solar age, everything. Um, yeah. The idea of, you know, I've talked about this a lot, you know, that the idea of digging in the ground um, for our energy and for our resources is kind oh, of oh. an old-fashioned idea. We should be looking kind up. Kind of barbaric. And, uh, yes, <laughs> and using the free photons that come exactly. from our mother star, the sun. Exactly, exactly. And the wind. All of yeah. the natural elements well, that's all are driven teeming by those with energy. And yeah. water. Water, yeah. just falling water, the use of the great principle called gravity. Yes. The, actually, it's like hundreds of times um, more powerful than anything else around. And if yeah. you use the falling water... You know, you've got more energy in a few of those that could power California and can power our our entire country. These are the kinds of dialogues I have with social entrepreneurs all the time because the answers and the solutions are really at our fingertips, which means that the Green Deal is a very executable thing. Now, one thing I did notice in it... One thing I read it in it is that it's rather generic. It leaves the on one hand that's a very good thing because it takes people like you and I and our friends and colleagues to come in and connect all of the dots, which is why I call upon drawdown and the work yes. that Paul and Catherine and so many others contributed to to be you know you need a guide in all of this. Otherwise, it becomes rather random. It's like a, you know suburban sprawl, you know. Whereas it can really be like in Germany. I mean, look at Germany. Germany is, isn't it? If I'm not mistaken, is 100% at this point renewable energy based. Um, is that 
Is that the case? Well, I'm, or I'm, are they I'm not, still approaching I'm not it? quite sure whether whether it is uh, that. Well, um, a few years ago they were at forty-eight to fifty. Mm. So, but I, I mean, heard, they, they are definitely. I would need to verify been, that. Yeah, they've been at this for a long time, and if that's because they've had a green party in Germany uh, for yeah. twenty-five years, you see. That, so that has um, prominence. They have prominence in their legislature. Yes, and so the the discussion yeah. has always been there. But you see, it, the same thing that the the scientists at um, the, the, in the drawdown group, we've been doing this with the Green Transition Scoreboard. We have been exactly. looking at the best technologies. We've had issues on batteries and storage. We've had issues on green bonds, growing green infrastructure. You know, we've yes. looked at the transportation technologies and when, what are we going to do? with uh, with uh, aircraft you know can we get to the point of of electrifying um air travel yes. they're trying to do yes. that in Norway now so we have been covering all of this too and which is why I contacted Alexandria's office and um uh, and offered, you know, whatever help they might oh, need excellent. on these kind of specifics, because you're absolutely excellent. right, Mitchell. We're now at the stage where everybody can jump in to this Green New Deal flagship and say, yes. okay, we've got all of this good stuff. And, of course, there'll be a few charlatans who'll jump in, too. You know? Oh, sure. And that's why the, for the drawdown course, thing, and that's why our model, yes. uh, because we are very, very stringent about um, the way we um, categorize green technologies. You know, no greenwashing allowed. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and along so the line, another Hazel, whole area which we look at at our current Green Transition Scoreboard is um, the shift now to plant-based proteins. And my friend Wayne yes. Silby was here, did some TV with him. Uh, he founded Calvert. And he was here about a year ago telling me oh. about his new company that he was investing in called Beyond Meat. And this oh. is just one of 20 or so startups on plant-based proteins. And yes. uh, basically... Is this the hamburger meat. substitute? Yes, that exactly. That became so popular and on the West Coast? There's dozens and dozens of them now. And actually, his company, the CEO of uh, Tyson Foods, the chicken people, put $55 yeah. million into Wayne's company. And really? they are now going to be in all the supermarkets. They're already in Whole Foods. And uh, when you go to the hamburger case in your local supermarket, you will now find Beyond Food, uh, Beyond Meat will Beyond be meat. there. You know? Interesting. And so so, see, the, the uh, livestock-based meat um, adds about um, 18%, uh, I think that's the right number, of, to uh, the greenhouse of CO2 gases. and greenhouse gases. I was going to bring that up. Exactly. And it's so mainly it's ag commercial agriculture, the commercial yeah. beef oh, yeah. All of that stuff. chicken, terribly. hogs, etc. Yeah, terribly, terribly. Because then we're dealing wasteful. with methane. 
and it's also bad for you, all of this stuff. And, yes. and so what we found in this report, which is a free download off our site, um, it, it's called Capturing CO2 While Improving Human Nutrition and Health. Uh-huh. And we looked at all of these startup companies and the plant-based proteins and the rise of vegetarianism. And I have to say, you know, that I have been a vegetarian for about 30 years, mostly yeah. because I'm an animal lover and I can't stand the idea. You know? <laughs> uh-huh. And uh-huh. so right. what we have, what we reported in this um, in this report of ours, we found a group based in the UK who are uh, animal lovers, animal rights people, and vegetarians, and they put together a consortium of investors. And not only are they investing in all these plant-based protein companies, but they also have a list of meat, big meat companies like Purdue, Tyson, Armour, mm-hmm. Hormel, um, McDonald's, um, and they're shorting them. Oh, so <laughs> both ends of it. And guess how? Guess the amount of money that they are bringing to the table into this battle. Ten trillion with a T. What? Oh and this is because what? look at most of Asia. Most Asian countries are actually vegetarian, largely yeah. vegetarian. They're only getting and, into the human, you know, into the Western mode of eating because recently, of us yeah. and because of the new middle class that has arisen yeah. in China and India. It's quite a recent know? thing, you know. <laughs> And so um, yes, so is. if you want to, um, you can join this group. You know, we, we have it all in our report. And uh, and I got in touch with them, of course, and signed up and said, oh, my gosh, we want to be your pro bono media partner. This is the greatest right. thing that ever happened. Right. And I That's say that wonderful. the whole thing is run by lovely young ladies. Uh-huh. Beautiful, beautiful great. young ladies. And they're eating <laughs> flowers all day long. No, I'm kidding you. <laughs> if you, if you go, and, yet, uh, and yet they've got this very tough thing now um, that they're actually shorting the stock of these uh, meat companies. Hysterical. That is just Isn't that hysterical? hysterical? So much for boycotting. Just short them. Just short the know. stock. Just short them. Which is something that we despise when it comes to that being done to some of our favorite green eco-friendly yes, companies that are just trying let's to short, rise up. Yeah. Right? Yeah, let's but, short the real losers. <laughs> yeah, right. So that brings something up that I've wanted to ask you in your you know role as in a, a green economist and all. Now, wouldn't it have made sense, and I know this has happened to some extent, uh, but – wouldn't it have made sense for companies like Exxon Mobil and Chevron, which has done this, by the way, appreciably, and Texaco and all the other oil majors, too, having read the writing on the wall, knowing where we are going as a society and as a culture, wanted to hop on the green bandwagon, Hazel, decades ago and diversify their own portfolio so for when the day hits of the execution of something like the green deal they will be wholly on their feet landing on their feet instead of being bowled over well from an economic and business point of view would that not have made 
very good sense. Yes, it would have done, but you know, I think we have to look again at the psychology. You know, um, uh, uh, the book that Kahneman wrote called "Thinking Fast and Slow," and oh. one of the things that he points out, you know, is this confirmation bias thing. You know, you get so that you want to believe in what you believe in. And you don't yes. want to hear, you want to go into denial about anything that kind of um, shakes Contra. your belief, you know. Yep. And then there's another thing, and another cognitive um, disability that we disability. humans have, mm-hmm. we're beginning to admit yes. our cognitive disabilities now, is a thing called theory-induced blindness. And there's a lot of that in the fossil fuel industry. There's a lot of that in Big Pharma. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in the White House. In the White House. There's a lot of that in the agrochemical industrial complex with all the industrial foods and all of that, you know. And the other thing, of course, is the enormous amount of sunk assets. And it's like, um, oh, until we amortize the sunk assets that we have in all this obsolete stuff, we can't yes. think of anything new. And and yes. so it, it's the old motto, nothing fails like success. Because you don't wow. know how to move off the dime, you know? Yes. It's, oh, my God, how do I write off all of this effort and all of yes. my God, you know, it's um, it's understandable. You know, you're a guy like Rex Tillerson, you know, and yes. you're heading up this gigantic company and you're making deals with Vladimir Putin, you know, to open <laughs> up the Arctic and all of this stuff. Yes. And, you know, it's kind of like you're on a runaway train. Right. It's very heady. Very yep. heady. Yep. You don't know how to. Yep. You don't know how to slow it down. You lose your balance. And so exactly. yeah. So that's in a sense, it's sort of like problem. being drunk. It it you know if we were to analyze it, it would probably be releasing um, an excess of dopamine into the brain, which Something essentially like is an addictive substance. You know. You know more you really about this than about I do. That. Yeah, but it's kind of yeah. interesting, and that's why I said. Um, you know, slightly playfully, but not altogether, to Paul Hawken, that really number one is changing the mind. Because if the mind gets changed, sort of a la what you're talking about right now, everything would flow like a well-oiled machine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, And so we do have to look at this theory-induced blindness. I mean, I've been dealing with this, trying to break the story, the good news about halophyte salt-loving plants and the other Mm -hmm. half of the food. It's the other half of the plant kingdom. What are those called? Phallogites? The name of the uh, salt-based... The name of the phallogites? Halophytes, yes. Yeah, Halophytes, yeah. And that, that just means salt-loving. And yes. uh, basically, you know, it's like um, salt-tolerant rice that's grown in China on that's the beaches right. in southern China. And it has a very high market price because it tastes so good. And yes, it just exactly. turns out, you see, that these halophyte-grown plants have actually, uh, they are complete 
proteins, that their mm. mineral profile is much better than be those grown on fresh water. And, you yeah. know, so we've got our entire food supply teetering perilously on the 3% of fresh water on this planet, completely yes. ignoring the 97% of salt water and the other half <laughs> of the plant kingdom that loves and thrives on salt water. I mean, the how, other, you can't make the other stuff issue, up. Right, right, you can't make it up. The, no. the other main issue, besides the cognitive dissonance, between, besides the... Um, the uh, what do you call it? The theory-induced blindness. Oh, yeah, the theory-induced blindness is a, my a serious pathological case of myopia. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That that ex- helps to explain a wee bit why that ninety-seven versus three percent of salts of fresh water is not seen and yeah, utilized right. appropriately, right? It's it's and, just amazing. Uh, Although I have two wonderful new allies now, John Todd, the famous ecologist oh, who started. From Woods Hole. Uh, yes, absolutely, and he's yes. now one hundred percent. In fact, I'm in touch with him a lot, and he says, "Go, Hazel, keep on pushing this stuff," you know. And in yes, his yes. new book that I just did a review of called mm-hmm. Healing Earth, he talks oh. about halophyte agriculture, and we're not we should be using oh. all these salt-loving plants. And then uh, my friend Jean, uh, Janine Benyus, the founder uh-huh. of Biomimicry, uh, and she oh, is yeah. now um, fully behind pushing uh, saltwater agriculture and using oh, all of wonderful. these nutritious foods. Well, you wrote that article uh, with the uh, scientist at, um, at NASA about that. Yes. Uh, and and it's on our, it's playing, the TV show is playing on our homepage right now. It's just me and the, the NASA chief scientist talking yes. about this is the lowest hanging fruit to save the, the climate. Yes. And, uh, you know, like I said, this is the only thing that wasn't in drawdown, but, you know, um, yes, exactly. Uh, basically, it's such good news, and this TV show, it's only 28 minutes, it's playing right now at ethicalmarkets.com on our homepage. Nice. Well, that's wonderful. But when you say to <laughs> sl- save the climate, um, how, you mean that it's just making use of resources much more wisely? Well, uh, first of all, these plants, guess what? Um, uh, store They're carbon uh, extremely well. They have very deep roots, and they do just as well as forests and you know, properly maintaining land, which we all know is the very best way to capture carbon sure. from the atmosphere. Sure. And, and so uh, this, this you know, uh, achieves three or four basic um, goals of the Sustainable Development Goals all at one point. At one time. Yes, in one uh, shot. And, in one shot. Yeah, yes. and, and um, all this can be done if we shift some of the investments. What we're talking about there is investing in saltwater agriculture being the next big thing. Mm-hmm. And we're saying mm-hmm. basically that that we're over investing now in the three percent of fresh water, you know, with irrigation yes. and pipes and you know, mm-hmm. salination, desalination, desalination, all this sure. kind of thing. 
Sure. Or all very sure. expensive and okay, it's fine to do that. But shift some of those investments into God, making lady. these plant uh, species more available. See, what we yeah. need is like um, the burpee seed packages for people to grow this stuff on their windowsills. That's right. Exactly. We haven't got exactly. it. You know, the well, market hasn't that. been developed. I am part of a project, however, about the microgreens that I mentioned before, where we yeah. do have the burpee-style seeds and a little kit that anyone, even someone without a green thumb, can grow their oh, microgreens good. in their own window. So we actually have that already. We're going to be bringing it Very to market good. in about four to six weeks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So oh, it is. That's definitely in place. Now, there's something else I'd like to bring up on the uh, environmental level of what's going on because we addressed the fossil fuel question. We addressed the uh, commercial uh, beef industry and cattle industry, et cetera, et cetera, as the cause of methane. But what we're seeing now, as you know, is a shift in the in the ice in the Arctic and in yep. Greenland, and it's defying all computer modeling, and it's actually been doing that for a long, long time. But now they have been seeing a radical, radical melting that's occurring now, Hazel, that is just runaway. Unfortunately, it's passing all of the tipping points, and it's just massively runaway. Do you have, I mean, I personally believe that if we were to slam on the brakes in all the ways that we've been discussing today and that uh, Paul Hawking goes into in Drawdown, if we had a massive shift, uh, which of course Ocasio was calling for, and she has every, not only right, I think she's 100% correct in demanding that. I mean, as you said, it's another moonshot. It's another yes. Marshall plan. Let's go and for we it do with that need kind of to move on this stuff, right? Yeah. This absolutely. is so no, I mean, serious. Yes, right? um, she's but what absolutely do you have to say? right. She's absolutely right, and we need to fortify her because she's yeah. only 29, and she's a great, amazing little lightning bolt. But we have more of the experience and sort of knowledge behind what is going on here. However, when it comes to this massive, this massive meltdown, what are your thoughts about this? Well, uh, the the only news thing that um, I have heard discussed. Um, and this was the uh, futurist uh, author. Uh, he's a science fiction writer, Kim Stanley Robinson. He has an article in um, the um, Sierra Club's magazine, and mm -hmm. he's saying the only thing that uh, w which is kind of uh, uh, possible to address something like this uh, is mm -hmm. some proposal to pump seawater. Uh, up onto the high um, areas in Antarctica where it will immediately freeze. And the idea oh. is to raise the, the snowpack. But, of course, it will take about 
oh, God knows how many percentages of all of the electricity that would have to be oh, God, used yes. to, and to, to do it. You see, I mean, yes. all of these things, it comes back to the fact that economists never learned physics. They never learned about the laws yes. of thermodynamics. You know, uh, and it's always a matter of how much energy uh, goes into all of these things. And the price system never tells you uh, the accurate answer to that. And therefore, they cannot properly calculate and account for the cost of things. Exactly. Right? Like the story exactly. of stuff of Annie Leonard. Right. You know, you never get an, exactly an, right. an accurate yeah. accounting, right? Exactly. So we get, so, you we see, get a radio rely, that looks like it's only $5, but it really costs right. 50 So they rely on this crazy price system, you see, which is all the prices are false. And, yes. and yet they're wedded to the idea that the price system is the only way of measuring value. And I've yes. been working with all these wonderful accountants who really, you know, have to be in the real world. And they are yes. now measuring companies by the six forms of capital of which finance is only one. And the Ooh. other five forms of capital, Six bottom course, lines, as it were, built capital, yes. you know, plant and equipment, intellectual capital, social capital. That's mm-hmm. all of the organizations and you know the infrastructure, yes. human capital, yes. and of course mm-hmm. natural capital. And the way they are measuring the performance of companies now is the extent to which they either enhance or degrade all six forms of capital. So it's no longer about money. Money is only one-sixth of the picture. Yes, so we're exactly. getting there gradually, but we really have to speed things up. And that's, that's why right. I'm so thrilled with all of these wonderful young people like Alexandria who are now yes. in the Congress. I'm I think so we, can, we can finally... Yes, and and just the same way that JFK was able to stand up to the Congress and say, we are going to put a man on the moon and bring exactly. him back safely in 10 years, and everybody's exactly. going, ha, 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 this is the craziest thing they ever heard of. But we did yes. it. So That's this right. is the new moonshot. That's right. And if you think about it, that was actually much more outrageous and yes, audacious much more outrageous. than we something that we've actually already it. started, as you said. Yes, $9.4 we don't, trillion. We dollars. To, yeah, we don't it's need already to invent um, anymore. We've got all the right. technologies we've got the we need. solutions. We've got the technologies. Yeah. Exactly. We just By want the to way, reprogram another, the capital. That's away right. From the reprogram past the mind the and the capital and its direction. Exactly. Yeah, um, that's all. And the in mind for sure. There is another technology of a freezing technology, you know, to add. I know I asked you the question, but I have heard of another technology that can change the uh, freezing points of water rapidly. And that oh, that sounds interesting. I haven't heard right. that one. And that would be possibly utilized up in the Arctic as well. So I personally feel very hopeful. I wish that two, three main people would resign 
from politics right now. One is um, Mitch McConnell. Yes. One is Donald Trump. And the other is Mike Pence. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be great? Our, you know, if they would be induced <laughs> to yeah. reside because they yes. are really uh, three, in the woods. Three, they tired, are, uh, three tired old men. That's exactly right. I have to and say. And Grassley yeah. can join them as well. You know, yes. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it, we really would have a different dynamic going, and it happens to be very much in the American spirit, Azel, all that you were just saying about Kennedy and the moonshot and bringing, um, putting a man on the moon and doing the new Green Deal. It yes. really is, uh, you know, pioneering. It's it's just what the American spirit loves to jump on. So yes, I think absolutely. Just encourage so let's all, all go out there. And also, um, I'm talking with all of the people that um, we connect with and partner with overseas and say, hey, let's have the Green New Deal go global. So, oh, yes. <laughs> but let's oh, do it here first. It. Exactly. That's you know that's where things begin here in the United yeah, States. So absolutely. well, you and I will yeah. team up here. I'm going to invite Alexandra to be a guest on a Better World Radio. I'm sure Wonderful. you'll do the same with Ethical Markets too. Yeah, and uh, we'll she's going to be a busy collaborating. Yeah. You bet. But with but a we, lot of support, we wish her we wish her all the best. Truly do, and I hope yeah. she just keeps dancing on Twitter. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so this has been well, fun, Hazel, Mitchell. Let's do it again sometime. We will definitely do it again. I uh, love having you on, and the dialogues are rich and penetrating for a lot of people. So thank you again for all of your good work. Oh, well, all the best to you too. Take care. Bye now. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye now. Hazel Henderson, founder and president of Ethical Markets and Ethical Markets Media. Make sure to go visit her website at ethicalmarkets.com. It will keep you busy for a long time. Uh, It's kept me busy for a long time, and I'm very, very pleased and honored to be a good friend of Hazel's. I'm on her Ethical Markets Advisory Board and her Ethic Mark uh, panelists of judges where we review Uh, commercials and advertising that are uh, pro-humane and pro-planet and eco-friendly and are putting out messages that help to positively impact our world. So, in fact, if you know of or are you, if you are generating any such types of video or artwork or prints of any sort, please forward them to me. Uh, for review for our our uh, Ethic Mark um, contests, which take place every year, and uh, we uh, award the one that wins. So it's it's a fun and prestigious uh, thing at this point. So I want to thank all of you for tuning in. As you see, we are very dedicated, positive outcome here for a better world for us all. And to do so, we do need to change the inner ecology as I kind of keep strumming that chord of changing the human mind and in and infusing it with a higher level of human spirit so we can be empowered to make smart, good, wise, intuitively aligned choices 
and uh, realign the world in a way that is along with nature. The ideas, of course, of Taoist thought and of biomimicry, we are always gaining when we are aligned with nature. So on that note, I want to just thank you again, all of you, and remind you that we at A Better World offer different types of consulting, counseling, and coaching services, energetic balancing services as well. Please visit our website. We have DVDs for sale in our Amazon store that are all along the ideas of personal and planetary health, well-being, and sustainability. So I want you to pass this along to all of your friends. We are also a nonprofit of 501c3, so if you are able to uh, help keep us sustained with any size contribution, it's always appreciated from all sources. Just contact me about that directly at mjr at abetterworld.net. And I also love receiving your thoughts and your comments about our shows as well. MJR at abetterworld.net. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. 